Turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 today. Matthew 22, verse 34. If you're using the black Bibles that are provided, that is page 828. Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. 34. The, the setting, once again today, as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, we're, we're still in the temple courts. And this is Tuesday of, of Passion Week. This is the, the week where Jesus will be crucified. And, and Jesus is, is in a confrontation with the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. They, want, they hate Jesus. They want to kill him, but they can't because of his popularity with the crowds. So they've been trying to discredit him. And last week we saw a group of, of Pharisees and Herodians together uh, try to ask Jesus a, a, a tough question. And then that was followed up by a group of Sadducees who asked Jesus a a theological question. And and together they were hoping to to, um, discredit Jesus. They were hoping to trap him. Hoping that the answers he gave to those questions would incriminate him with either the Jews or the Romans. But in both of those cases, Jesus was victorious. In both of those cases, Jesus answered brilliantly with wisdom and authority and so he thwarted their, their evil plans. And now here in verse 34, Jesus' Jesus's enemies are hoping that, as the saying goes, the third time is the charm, right? Because now they bring a third question to him, hoping to, uh, again, trap him. So would you stand, please, once again for the reading of God's word? We want to consider today verses 34 to 46. So please follow along in your copy as I read. Matthew twenty two thirty four. Let's hear the word of God. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. Well, the title of the sermon this morning is Look to Christ. Look to Christ. We will work through the passage under two main headings, and then I will conclude by calling us to look to Christ in three specific ways. So the first heading, if you're taking notes, is the required standard. The required standard. Look again at verse 34. 
This sets the scene. This is where they they pose this question once again, trying to trap him. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, which in a way they were probably glad, right? Because the Pharisees didn't like the Sadducees. But yet they're like, all right, we're going to take another crack at this here, right? They gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Now the lawyer's a scribe. He's an expert in the scriptures. He's an expert in what we would call the Old Testament, right? And so here's another question to test Jesus, to try to discredit him, to try to catch him in a mistake so they can accuse him. And it's interesting there in verse 34, Matthew says, they gathered together. That's the same word that translates the, the uh, it's the same word as the Greek translation of Psalm 2. Let me just read that for you. Psalm 2 It's in verse 2, but let me start in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. There's that word. Against the Lord and against his anointed one. (laughs) You see, that was, Psalm 2 was prophesying about how people would rise up against the Lord's anointed one, against the Christ, against his promised king. And that's exactly what's happening here in Matthew 22. That's what they're doing. They're gathering together. Why? To test Jesus. Why? Because they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. Their hearts are hard. They won't, they won't submit to him. They won't follow him. They won't embrace him and worship him. And so they're gathered together in their unbelief and in their rebellion against him. So may, don't, don't let us see this as just kind of like, oh, this is like a Bible study. You know, this is like a, just kind of like a, a theological uh, back and forth, how, how fun. No, this is, this is rebellion, right? This is unbelief. So they're gathered together and the lawyer asks Jesus in verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Meaning, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And that was a hotly debated topic by the rabbis of the day because <laughs> there's 613 laws altogether um, in, in the Old Testament. <laughs> So, you know, they knew that, of course, we should obey all of God's commands, right? But they did classify the various laws. They, they had what they called heavier laws and lighter laws. And so there was an accepted sense of, of a hierarchy to the commandments. Some commands were heavier. Some commands were weightier. In other words, they took priority. So even though this lawyer and, and the Pharisees, you know, who've sent him, their motive is evil, right? They're, they're gathered against Christ, even though their motive is evil, this is actually a relevant question. Which is, the, we would say, the greatest commandment in the law? What, what is priority? What should we be focused on? Well, Jesus answers him in verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And they would have right away recognized what, what he was quoting there, right? Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6.4, which was a central piece of the, of the Shema, right? The, the Shema starts off, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God, right? With all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. So this was something that, that pious Jews recited every morning and every evening, and, and it, was, it was an important foundational piece to their, to their relationship with God, to their, we would say, to their faith. It, it, 
It affirmed the unity of God. The Lord is one. It affirmed the covenant relationship they were in with God. Right? The Lord, our God. And so Jesus says, that's the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The text emphasizes that all, all, all. Heart, soul, and mind here are not intended to be these rigid, distinct components. Like, okay, I've got this piece of me that, and this piece of me. No, it's just that's a way of describing the, the whole person. He's saying you, you should, everything about you should be devoted to the Lord your God. God is to be loved completely and totally because he alone is God. Because he has made a covenant of love with his people. And in this covenant, God gives himself totally in love to his people. Therefore, he expects his people to give themselves totally. Heart, soul, mind, in love to him. So really, it's it's a beautiful command, isn't it? It's It's a very simple command, yet profound command. To love the Lord, your God, with all that you are. The greatest commandment is that we would earnestly love God. That God would be the most important, the most valuable, the most beautiful person to us. Now the lawyer just said, what is the great command, right? He didn't ask for two commands, but Jesus gives him a second one in verse 39. And a second is like it, Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says, there's, that's the great command, and there's a second like it. There's a second like it in preeminence. And then he quotes Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now that is not a command, as some try to twist or whatever. That's not a command of, to love ourselves. <laughs> no. It's, it's assuming that we do love ourselves, right? We do take care of ourselves. We do look out for our needs. The command is saying, as you do that for yourself, make sure you're doing that for your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. So you put these together. Love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. Again, simple But profound, Jesus brought together Leviticus 19.18 with Deuteronomy 6.5 to show that love of neighbor is a natural and logical outgrowth of love of God. The fact that Jesus takes this commandment from Leviticus 19, attaches it to the Shema, indicates that together they realize, they, they form the will of God for his people. The combination of these two commandments, again, as Christians, we're probably pretty familiar with that, right? We've, we've, we've read that. We've heard that. We, there's a song that I know we sing once in a while. We sing it a lot in college ministry, right? That love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love all of mankind as you would love yourself, and, right? So we're familiar with that. But to the, to the Jews here, I mean, this was, this was revolutionary, This was the first time any rabbi had fused these two scripture references together. And and once again, Jesus' answer is is brilliant. 
right? It, it summarized the entire Ten Commandments. You know, the commandments have, you know, the, the, the first, what, four are, are vertical, directed toward God, then, then the, the horizontal toward man, and Jesus, like, summarizes those and, and boils it all down to love God with all, all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. Brilliant. And it's not just the Ten Commandments it summarizes. Look what Jesus says in verse 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All of what we would call the Old Testament, Jesus says, is summed up in these two commandments. Love God, love neighbor. Love fulfills the law. And that's what the, New Te- the, the rest of the New Testament says. That's what the Apostle Paul taught in Galatians 3.13. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's what Paul was teaching, you know, regarding the, the, the horizontal component. He says, hey, the whole, the whole law... It's summed up by love, right? If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to steal from him. You're not going to covet the things he has. You're not going to, you know, kill him. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love neighbor. That's what God calls his people to do. So once again, Jesus has answered well. Three times now, the religious leaders have tried to discredit Jesus. They've tried to trap Jesus with these, these questions. But they have failed miserably because each time Jesus answers perfectly and each time Jesus displays the same authority that he's been showing throughout his, his earthly ministry here. And, and though the, the, his enemies hope to discredit him in the eyes of the crowds, he's actually being elevated in the eyes of the people as he answers these questions. And now in verse 41, Jesus turns the tables on them, right? He's, they've been asking him questions. He's been answering them. And now Jesus says, okay, I'm going to ask you guys a question. <laughs> and, and the people are gathered around. Let's, let's have them hear how you answer this. So it's, it's kind of as if Jesus is saying, you know, you guys have been, I know what you've been trying to do. You've been trying to trap me and all that. And I've answered, I've, I've thwarted that. But you know what? I'm not going to just be defined by my answers to your questions. I'm going to ask you a, questions be, a question because I want you guys to consider who I am. Right? I want you to know my identity. And that's what we're getting into here now in verse 41 and following. And that leads us to our second heading there in your notes. All right? We had the required standard. Now heading two is the divine Savior King. The divine Savior King. Verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, verse 42, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So Jesus poses a question about the Christ. Right? Christ is not his last name. Right? Christ is a title. Jesus the Christ. Jesus Christ is Greek. Hebrews, Messiah, right? Jesus, the Messiah, means the anointed one, the promised king that the Jews were longing for, that had been promised to them through the covenants and and declared through the prophets. They're longing for this great human king to deliver them. But here in Matthew 22, Jesus wants to show them that, yes, I know you guys are looking for this king, you're expecting him, you're longing for him, but your understanding of the Messiah 
is way too limited. Your understanding of who the Messiah is, who the Messiah will be, is very inadequate. It's incomplete. The promised Messiah was not only going to be a great human king, right? That's what you guys are looking for. But he is more than that. And so Jesus starts the discussion about Christ by asking, whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David, right? I mean, that was, that was an easy one, right? You know, you kind of start him off easy. That's fine. Every Jew knew that. God had promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that one of his descendants would be the promised Messiah. There's many other Old Testament texts after that then that speak about the Messiah being in the line of David. And so he, son of David was, a, was a, a, a way of referring to the coming Messiah. So the Jews longed for the son of David. And again, what were they what were most of them hoping for? Well, they were longing for the son of David to come and be like David, this military king, and overthrow the Romans and restore the, the physical kingdom to Israel. So yeah, the Pharisees naturally get that answer right. They answer it correctly. The Messiah was to be a son of David. But you know, Jesus is just, okay, good. We're, 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 I'm going somewhere with this. Verse 43, his next question. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him, the Messiah, Lord? And then he quotes, in verse 44, he quotes from Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now Jesus, again, is quoting Psalm 110.1. Before we get into The identity stuff, I mean, let's just notice some things about the Bible here, right? Psalm 110 was a well-known psalm. In fact, it's the most quoted Old Testament. uh, It's the chapter in the Old Testament that's most quoted in the, quoted the most often, let's try it that way, in the New Testament. It's Psalm 110. Many times the apostles refer to it. Here Jesus is quoting it. And he's, Jesus says straight up, this is a psalm of David, right? David wrote Psalm 110. And notice, by the way, what else does he say about that process? In the Spirit. Right? Look Look at your text there. How is it then that David, verse 43, in the Spirit, and then he gets to the quotation, right? So that reminds us this important truth, right? This is what young people we've been talking about on Sunday nights, by the way, right? How we got the Bible. God used men to write the Bible, but the Bible is not just the words of man. (laughs) No, no. God used men to write the Bible, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, Peter says. So that what they wrote were the very words that God wanted them to write. But yet... They weren't robots dictating. God powerfully used their their personalities, their styles, their their backgrounds to, to write in their unique style. But yet they wrote the very words God wanted them to write because they were in the Spirit. That's why the Bible declares that scriptures are inspired. Literally, God breathed. Right? These are God's words that have been preserved for us. Praise God. They're they're powerful. They're life-giving. So when we sing, show us Christ, that's what we're praying, right? Not just, hey, teach me some more knowledge, right? I mean, yes, we need knowledge, but through that knowledge, we're, we're praying for something supernatural to happen. 
for dead hearts to be replaced with, with living, breathing hearts of flesh and hearts of faith. For, for growth to take place in God's people. Oh, please pray for the, for the preaching of God's word. Please, please pray throughout the week as, as sermons are prepared, as Bible studies are, are given, that God's word will go forth in a powerful way and accomplish his purposes for his glory. All right, well, let's get back to kind of the, 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 the account here, right? What's taking place. Jesus quotes Psalm 110.1. Again, Psalm 110 was a very well-known psalm in Jesus' day. Why? Because everyone knew it was a messianic psalm. Right? There's, there's a handful of psalms that are called messianic psalms because they're describing, maybe they have you know, a little application to the, the author at the time, David, but they, everyone noticed or recognized they are, they're talking about more than just David. Right? They're pointing ahead to the Messiah. And Psalm 110 is one of those. And so Jesus says, Since the Christ... Since the Messiah is David's son, why then does David in Psalm 110.1 call him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord. In other words, the Lord Yahweh said to the Messiah. But how did, how did David describe the Messiah? He called him my Lord. So that's what Jesus is asking them. He's saying, no, wait a minute. You said that he, the Messiah is David's son. Well, why then does David call him Lord? David would never call just a a normal descendant Lord. He would have called him son, right? I mean, fathers don't don't call their sons Lord, especially in, in their patriarchal society. So why would David call his son, the Messiah, Lord? That's the question that he's posing. So how do they do? Right? We've talked about how Jesus does answering their questions. How do they do? Well, look at verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word. <laughs> the religious leaders, they, apparently they don't know. They don't know why David would call his son Lord. Maybe they've never noticed that. Maybe they've never considered that. Maybe they've never, you know, really given it any thought. Jesus is showing that David himself recognized that the Messiah, and here's the point, David himself recognized that the Messiah was going to be more than just a human king. Even more than just this victorious human king. He would also be a divine king seated at the right hand of God the Father. Right? That's what Psalm 110 is talking about, right? Until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus was using the scriptures to to enlarge, dare we say, explode their limited view, their limited idea of the Messiah. He's saying the Messiah can only be David's son and Lord if he is God's son. Jesus is teaching them, you guys call the Messiah son of David, and he is, but he is more than that. That, that, Just saying that is inadequate. You think the Messiah is only human. You need to realize that in order for the promised Messiah to do all that the scriptures said he would do, he will need to be both man and God. No mere human king can fulfill all that the Messiah is to be. The Messiah was to reign forever in perfect righteousness. 
Well, no mere human can do that. He needs to be both human and divine. And David, in the spirit, recognized that fact. And so he called him Lord. Now, no doubt, David, I'm not saying David back then knew all the details of the incarnation, right? How all that was going to play out. And No, I mean, there's the progress of, of revelation, the progress of God revealing this to his people, right? But even then, by God's grace, by the Spirit, David saw the Messiah would have to be more than just a human. And so Jesus is teaching everyone here about the true nature and the, and the true mission of the Messiah, right? Because remember, that's what Jesus was always battling, was people misunderstanding what, what he had come to do. Jesus is explaining that the Messiah is more than a human king. He's the very son of God. He is God in the flesh. And so he's saying, I've not come to defeat the enemies of Israel, but the enemies of the human race. Sin, death, and evil. I'm not here to restore the earthly kingdom of David, but I'm here to establish a completely different kind of kingdom. I'm not going to rule from Jerusalem, but I'm going to rule from the Father's right hand. That's where my throne is, the heavenly throne. Now, of course, all those truths I just shared, I mean, those can really only truly be understood after his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, right? And we're blessed to be at that point in, in redemptive history, right? And have, have the word of God. And that's, when, that's why you see the apostles after the resurrection of Christ, after the ascension of Christ, the sending of the Spirit. You see them proclaim this in the power of the Spirit, right? They're, they're preaching this. That Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. And he's seated at the Father's right hand. For example, if you would look at that sermon by Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, he, Acts 2.34, he quotes the same verse in talking about Jesus, right? And what, what has taken place. So their view, again, of the Messiah was inadequate. And, it, and as I was thinking about that, I thought, wow, how, how true is that today? How many people's view today, or let me say it this way, how many people have an insufficient view of Jesus today? Oh, you know, Jesus was, man, he was a good man. You know, Jesus was a, he was a great teacher. We, you know, we should pay attention to some of his teachings, they're really helpful. You know, Jesus, man, man, uh, almost like, you know, a view of him is kind of like a, a sympath- we have a sympathetic view of him, like, wow, he really suffered a lot, you know, I mean, he, he was like a martyr. Inadequate. Insufficient view of Jesus. He's more than just that. Jesus, being fully, fully God, fully man, what did he do? Jesus willingly laid down his life. Well, first, he willingly came to earth, right? Took on that human nature. And then he willingly laid down his life. You know, you could watch the Passion of Christ and think that, you know, and again, I'm not saying there's not any value to, to watching that. I'm just saying you could watch that and, and miss that. You could watch that and just think, wow, Jesus was a victim or something here, right? Of, of, of very cruel people. No, he willingly laid down his life. Why? 
because that's what he had come to do, to seek and to save those who were lost. And by laying down his life, Jesus defeated sin, death, and Satan because he died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice, fully satisfying the wrath of God for all who believe. And then three days later, God raised him from the dead in victory and in power. And like we said, God then ascended Jesus to heaven, exalting him to the Father's right hand, far above all rule and authority and dominion and power. And so that's who Jesus is. Is he just one of many ways to God? No, he is the only way to God. Is he just a good teacher? He is more than that. He is Lord of all. And Jesus will, the Bible says, Jesus will return. He will return to earth, not coming humbly, being born to a poor family, to being born a babe and a, to a virgin. No, no. He will come in power and great glory and defeat his enemies once and for all and rule forever in righteousness over a perfect, recreated heaven and earth. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But do you see it now? By God's grace, do you see it now that Jesus is Lord? Do you confess that? Do you rejoice in that? Do you bow before him now? Have you embraced him as as Savior, as your only hope? Your right standing before God depends on on you understanding and trusting in who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. So we can have an inadequate view about a lot of things, but it better not be about Christ. (laughs) We need to have a proper view of Jesus, that he is God in the flesh who came to earth to die in the place of sinners, that he is the Savior who will save you from the wrath of God that you deserve, that he is Lord who will defeat the power of sin in your life. And so that demands a response, doesn't it? We need to turn to him in repentance and faith. Do we, see the, do we see the Pharisees doing that here in verse 46? Sadly, no, we don't. Right? You know, I mean, verse 46, again, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. I mean, in a way, you read that and you think, yeah, way to go, Jesus. You know, you showed them, right? And, and, and that's, that's a good response, right? Victory. But yet, I see something sad in that verse too, right? Yeah, yeah, I don't want them to be asking him questions to test him anymore, but how about asking him, Lord, what must I do to be saved, right? How about about, uh, falling to their knees and and, and saying, we are sorry that we have been opposing you. Man, please forgive us for for not believing that you were the Messiah and, and, and tell us more, right? Explain to us more about who you really are and what you've come to do. No, we don't see that. Yeah, they they go away with their tail between their legs in defeat, but also still in hardened unbelief. But that may that not be true of anyone here today, of anyone listening to this message. May that not be true. And so I close with again the title of the sermon is Look to Christ. And I have three specific ways I want you to look to Christ today. Number one, look to Christ in repentance and faith. 
Look to Christ in repentance and faith. Again, you take these, these two accounts together, right? Because they happen right after one another. And what do we see? Well, for one, we see the identity of who Jesus is, right? That he's Lord and Savior. The risen Lord and Savior. But also, remember the first account, right? We see this, the, the standard God requires, we see that God requires us to love him with all of our being and to sacrificially love our neighbor as ourself. That's God's required standard. And when we, when we consider that, we have to say, wow, I am in trouble, right? We all fall woefully short of that, don't we? We, we have not loved God. We've not worshipped him and served him with all of our being. Rather, we often have served and loved and ourselves. We've not loved others. Instead, we often use them for our own selfish interests. And again, there might be t- glimmers, there might be times when we think we're loving God and loving others, and, but we don't do this all the time, right? And that's, Jesus, that's God's standard. Perfect obedience, perfect conformity to this standard all the time. That's what God commands. That's what he requires. That's what he deserves. That's what he requires for us to be with him in heaven. God is holy. He cannot be with sin. So if we could keep those commands perfectly, we could be with him in heaven. Jesus himself said so, right? In in Luke 10... Uh, you have, have this, uh, a similar account here, or, or probably the same account. Luke just places it at a different point here. Jesus, when he summarizes and gives those two commandments, he says, 1028, do this and you will live. In other words, go obey that perfectly and you will have eternal life. And Paul says the same thing in Galatians 3.12 of the Old Testament laws. The one who does them shall live by them. But of course, as they're saying that, they're, they're making the point that none of us can do that, right? None of us obey those things perfectly, not even for an hour, let alone for a whole life. So on our own, we're doomed. Left to ourselves, we're destined for eternal hell. So what can we do? We look to Christ in repentance and faith. God will not change his standard, but he has provided a savior. Praise God. God will not change his standard, but he has provided a savior, a substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus did what we failed to do. Jesus lived that perfect life as a man. Jesus perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus loved God with all of his being. He obeyed the Heavenly Father all the time, even to the point of laying down his life as a sacrifice for sin according to the Father's will. And so by fulfilling God's required standard, Jesus earned, or we could say secured, righteousness for all who believe, for all who turn to him in repentance and faith. And not only that, but by dying on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for the sins for all who believe. And so the Bible says that when a person turns from their sin and places their trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, that a great exchange takes place. What is that exchange? Well, Christ's righteousness is credited to you. 
It's as if you did and do perfectly obey those laws. You meet the standard because his righteousness is credited to you. And then your sins are paid for by Christ. What an amazing gift. What a, what a gracious exchange that is. We are reconciled to God now and promise that we will be with him forever in heaven. Oh, what peace and joy that, that gives those who are united to Christ. And so you say, okay, well, praise God I've done that, right? By God's grace, I've done that. So I, I guess we can just forget about God's command to love him, right, and love our neighbor. No, <laughs> right? No, we're still called to do that, by the way, right? I mean, Christ, you know, he, he's saying it here. He develops this uh, in, in the New Testament. Matter of fact, in John 13 and John 15, he says to his disciples, you are to love one another as I have loved you. So not just love your neighbor as yourself, even though, you know, that's, that's still true, but love others as I have loved you, sacrificially laying down your life. But what's the difference now as believers in Christ? The difference is now this command is not foreign to our nature. Now this command to love God and love others, now we want to keep that command, right? Through Christ, God has made us a new creation. And Romans says God has poured his love into us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. So now God has set us free from slavery to selfishness and rebellion and unbelief. And so now we do truly love God. And now we love God because he first loved us, 1 John says. And now we do truly love others because we've been shown such love through Christ. Now don't get me wrong. We still fall short of the, of the standard, right? Because we're still battling our remaining sin. But, but we know that our salvation is secure. So now we're freed from fear and guilt. And we can simply pursue loving God and loving others to the glory of God. And in the power of the Spirit. And that leads, uh, leads me then to the second way we should look to Christ. Look to Christ not only in repentance and faith, and I, I pray that everyone today does that, but also then, having done that, as Christians, look to Christ for daily grace. Look to Christ for daily grace. As Jerry Bridges helpfully explains in his books, there are two, I don't know if you want to say definitions, or really kind of two components of grace, right? Grace is God's unmerited favor to us through Christ, that's what we mean when we say we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. God's unmerited favor to us through Christ. But grace is also God's divine assistance to us through the Holy Spirit. And that's the daily grace I'm talking about here, right? This is the daily grace, the daily strength that we need as Christians to live the life that God has called us to, to live. And so when we think about loving the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind, we have to say, oh God, I still fall so short of that. And I know you are truly lovely, but I'm, I'm still so, so prone to wonder. I'm still prone to chase after things that are, I think are lovely, but they're really not. Help me love you with all my heart, soul, and mind. I need your grace. And that believer, that's what I'm calling us to do. Look to Christ daily for grace as you follow him. Because the Bible says Christ is sovereign, he is generous, he is wise, he will pour out that grace on you daily. 
His heart flows with compassion for those who recognize their need and come to him to meet that need. So look to Christ in order to love God and love others. Look to Christ when you, when you have to admit, my love is cold today. Lord, please help me. Look to Christ when you're weary, when you're burdened. Look to Christ when you're, when you're overwhelmed, when you're afraid. Look to Christ when you're being tempted to do something that wouldn't be loving to God or loving to others. Look to Christ when you have failed and you need cleansing. Look to Christ when you need wisdom and strength. Look to Christ for daily strength, for daily grace. Jesus loves you. Jesus will draw near to you. And you will find grace to help in your time of need. And as we sang, we need him every hour. So look to him. So look to Christ in repentance and faith. Secondly, look to Christ for daily grace in the Christian life. And, and finally, look to Christ in prayer and praise. Look to Christ in prayer and praise. And what I mean by that is, let us not only look to Christ in times of need, let us do that, but not, not just look to Christ in times of need, but may we also draw near to Christ in sweet communion, right? Fellowshipping with him through prayer, declaring and singing our praise to him. So look to Christ. This world has many distractions, right? Many things that try to steal our affections. But may we daily turn the eyes of our heart away from the world and look to Christ. Looking to Christ by reading our Bibles. Looking to Christ by, through prayer. Looking to Christ through, through worship, through personal singing and praise. Looking to Christ through our corporate gatherings. Let us look to Christ. Look to Christ in prayer and praise. And loved ones, may we, by God's grace, may we daily look to Christ until one day our faith becomes sight and we see Christ like never before. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you and we praise you for sending your son to live and die in our place. Oh, Father, if there are any here today who have heard this message and they have never trusted in Christ, I pray that by your sovereign grace you will draw them to, to yourself, that you will open their eyes to, to show them that their need, Lord, to show them that your standard and, and how far they fall short like we all do. Lord, bring them to that, that crisis and then Point them to the Savior that you've provided. Lord, give them a new heart so that they can look to Christ in, in faith. Lord, cause them to forsake their sin, to turn from the things of this world that promise to satisfy but, but don't meet our greatest need. Lord, cause them to look to Christ. May they see his beauty. May they see, be wooed by his love. May they be in awe of, of his authority, that one day they will stand before him. Oh God, please help them look to Christ in repentance and faith. And then may all of us, your people, Lord, may we look to you daily for the grace we need. Forgive us for when we, when we stubbornly try to just do things in our own strength and, and don't, don't seek you first. And then we, we fail miserably, make a mess of things. Thank you for being so patient. Thank you for, 
for being so loving, for being a sympathetic high priest that we can come to and find grace to help in our times of need. And so, Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you. Please give us grace. We want to grow. We want to grow in our love for you. May Abounding Grace Church be a a church that increasingly loves you with all of our being. May we be a church that, that truly loves others as Christ has loved us. Give us grace to put to death the sin that remains. To walk in the spirit that Christ's life would be increasingly lived through us. Father, we love you because you first loved us. You are altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and and look to Christ now in, in singing and praise.